Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a new exhibition of original highwayman paintings opens at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa on April 6th. The way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. We'll discuss the autobiography of George Ballantyne, a 19th century Englishman in Florida. We're looking at a first edition that was published in 1853. It's entitled Autobiography of an English Soldier in the United States Army. And we'll talk about the Grand Army of the Republic with historian Barbara Gannon. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Highwayman artists are a group of African-American painters who specialize in beautiful Florida landscapes. These artists were inspired by white artist Beanie Backus of Fort Pierce, but developed their own unique style of painting very quickly in large quantities using inexpensive materials. With the exception of highwayman Alfred Hare, who studied with Backus, the highwayman artists were mostly self-taught. The original group of highwayman artists emerged in the mid-1950s in the Fort Pierce area. Their work was not sold in galleries, but from cars driven from one end of Florida to the other. Al Black is one of the original highwayman artists, but that's not how he started with the group. Yes, sir. I was the salesman for the whole group. I uh, would load all the paintings up in the car and take off in the mornings. And if they give me 50 paintings, I would sell 50 paintings. Al Black explains the secret of his success as he took the highwayman paintings from Fort Pierce down to the Keys and up to Alabama and many places in between. Well, I was always a good talker, and I would uh, go around and I would go to the real estate offices, doctor's offices and attorneys and uh, motels and different offices and I would go in and say, my name is Al Black, say I'm uh, representing Ahair, uh, Newton, uh, whoever I was selling for at that time. And I said, I would like to know would you all be interested in some paintings if it wouldn't take up too much of you all's time. And most of the time, uh, they would let me come in and sell some. While Black was transporting highwayman paintings around the state to sell, they would sometimes get damaged. Often he would load the paintings into his car while they were still wet. That was how Al Black started painting. I would fix the paintings uh, when I mess them up on the road because we had to sell them uh, real fast because in that time we were selling them real low. 
and we had to keep on painting. And while they would be painting, I would be out on the road. And I learned how to paint by fixing the, all the different artists' paintings when I mess one up. After years of successfully selling the work of other highwaymen artists, Al Black decided he could create Florida landscapes himself. After I fixed them for so many years, I was a salesman back in the 60s up until the 70s. And after I fixed so many, I could start painting myself. Al Black's story is unique among the more than two dozen highwaymen artists. He could not sell his work for more than a decade. Well, I was in uh, the prison system for 12 years, but I still painted. They allowed me to paint right there in prison. And ain't too many people that were, was able to paint in prison. But by me being one of the highwaymen, and I was famous and everything, they went on and let me paint it. I sold most of them already, but everything I paint, it sells anyway. So I don't hardly have any more of those prisoner paintings, but the ones was uh, signed with a block A, uh, those paintings sell for more because they was, it won't be any more of that because they're all prisoner paintings. The highwaymen artists are known for their idyllic depictions of the natural Florida prior to development and urban sprawl. Their paintings focus on marshlands, river scenes, beaches, sunrises and sunsets, palm trees, brightly colored poinciana trees, Spanish moss hanging from cypress trees, and Florida's indigenous wildlife. Al Black says that their paintings preserve Florida history. That's right, because of you, the, the way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. The original group of highwaymen artists followed the examples of Alfred Hare, who studied with Beanie Backus, and Harold Newton. Mary Ann Carroll is a pastor from Fort Pierce and an original highwayman artist. Her mentor was Harold Newton. I saw his car with a fiery flame painted on the side, and it, I've always been intrigued by things that was different, and that was different. And so one day I saw him sitting on 20th, my 20th Street talking to somebody, and I saw it, and I stopped him and asked him questions about the car, and he let me know he painted it. So then it was a painting laying in the back seat, and I th always thought this stuff was done with a camera. I didn't ever think it would be done by people. Well, see, when I was small, I'd look at the catalogs and stuff, and I guess that's why I thought that way. I used to like look at Norman Rockwell's work, but it never dawned on me that it could be done that way. When I saw Harold, then he told me he did it. I saw him um, painting on a tree, and I stopped, drove in the yard, and I stopped, and he, uh, I didn't enter interrupt him I just he knew me from seeing me over there on 20th street so what he didn't have to ask me who I was what I was looking for and I just watched him paint so when he got through I asked him would he show me teach me so and he said yes yeah. so I went over there one day and he tacked me up an 18 by 24 board and it was a river scene and I'll never forget he co-phased two palms on it because I didn't know how to paint no trees he mixed the colors for me and that's how I went it was more or less like pastel colors and so I just went on wild myself painting what I, colors I like. I couldn't ever get them out of like I wanted them a lot of time, but other people seem to like them, so I didn't have a problem with that, you know. So but he was, uh, he inspired me through the works that he'd done. And he's the first one that I have known that was an actual highwayman. But we never looked at it like that, but we accepted the name because it's the way you made your living.
they really didn't feel like we was gallery material. So we had to do what we had to do. I guess you could call it a, a, a mobile gallery. <laughs> and so this is the way it had started, and it went on from there to where it is now. Marianne Carroll is the only female highwayman artist. She says that the artists never thought of themselves as any kind of organized group. The name Highwayman was assigned to the painters by art dealer Jim Fitch in 1995 in an article he wrote for the magazine Antiques and Art Around Florida. We weren't really a group per se. We were all independent bodies with our own self, uh, self and same desires and uh, tasks. They're like a bunch of people in Orange Grove picking fruit, but everybody picking his own fruit. You know, you need to go and look to get none of mine that I pick, pick your own fruit. So we basically was associated by our, um, by our gift. And they really, I didn't really have a problem with the guys. They weren't, they didn't go all out the way to let me know I was, they was going to help me or nothing like that. So I just looked at it as a woman surviving in a man's world and I knew I had to do what I had to do because I had responsibility down the line. I had responsibility to seven children, raise single parent. And this is why I can't see people not falling out because they have to raise one or two kids. And I mean, it's just, I did it and it was not, I know it was the grace of God, but I thank God because Jim Crow days and all that stuff. But I notice in life that there are people that take you for who you are and for not what somebody else wants you to be. And there were many whites that was there for us. And there were many that looked like they wanted to say, well, get out of here. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just a thing where it worked out fine in our behalf. And there were many nice people as well as unnice. And that go on every, every side of the world, every side of the race, creed and color. We all have some hangups and problems. And, uh, but me, uh, they used to tell me that, uh, so how do you be feel about called a highway woman, highwayman? I sort of doesn't really bother me, you know, because when I, a little common judgment, when I looked, you know, when Adam and Eve, Eve came from man's side, and so she was called woman. And I noticed on man and men, the last three letters spells the same. So therefore it doesn't bother me, and it didn't bother me really but I never thought of nothing like that as me being a woman, they being a man. I just thought of us as being artists to, to make a living for ourselves. In addition to being a painter, Marianne Carroll expresses herself in other creative ways as a poet and musician. It's all just a part of me. Uh, like you might get tired of wearing black shoes and put on some brown ones or something like that. I just look at it as a mind soother. And I uh, travel five states singing gospel made two records and have some now sitting back been had them for about 10 years i want to put them out on a cd now and i passed the church small congregation of people uh and i thank god that we lost one here a few weeks ago that was very dedicated and i um uh, i even painted houses and did a little plumbing i mean all this i raised seven kids as i said single parent and i always felt that an honest dollar was more than any dollar in the world in my hands, an honest dollar. Not one that I got out and cheated somebody, uh, stole or something like that, uh, body bargaining. <laughs> 
So I'm, I'm just grateful to God that he had those gifts for me. Like the other highwayman artists, Mary Ann Carroll is preserving a part of Florida that is quickly disappearing to development and urban sprawl. You look back even now, it's still a little bit, but from when I was coming up, the places that we was raised, they're not there now. And the schools that we used to attend, basically almost gone. And uh, it's just the scenery that used to be there is not there now. And we either have to memorize it from the spot it was in or some of it is still there. We can, you know, like Savannah's, they're still there. They haven't been bothered too much. And uh, the inlet, St. Louis Inlet, is still there. It haven't really been bothered, the water site. But I guess if it hadn't been for water management, it would have been tampered with also. And a lot of the backwoods, country scenes and things are gone. They're not there now. And it have taken a whole lot of nature from, from our view. Roy McClendon is also one of the handful of highwaymen artists who originated the movement in the Fort Pierce area in the mid-1950s. Soon after Jim Fitch coined the name Highwaymen Artists, books soon followed. In 2001, Gary Monroe wrote the book The Highwaymen, Florida's African-American Landscape Painters, and in 2005, Bob Beatty wrote Florida's Highwaymen, Legendary Landscapes. In 2004, 26 artists called the Highwaymen were inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. McClendon says he was surprised to discover how many Highwaymen artists there were. Well, Gary Monroe read this book, and you know, well, uh, Jim Fitch opened all the seabirds, he named us the Highwaymen. So. And then he read the book about the Highwaymen, Gary Monroe. So. Then we all was inducted into the Hall of Fame. See, what happened is, um, a lot, of, a lot of people in the book, I didn't even know. But they had the name in the book, so they put everybody in the book in the Hall of Fame. So that's what happened there. Because a lot of them, I, I never heard tell them, tell them the highwaymen come out. And then, then, some, then a lot of people want to get on the wagon. Because the price went up, you know. Oh, yeah, because pictures like what is new stuff for $35. I was sitting for 35 and 4500 for it, the same painting, you know, so now everybody want to be a <laughs> As McClendon points out, the average price for a highwayman painting in the 1950s and 60s was $35, and today it's not unusual for them to sell for $3,500. More importantly, the story of the highwayman artists is one of creative people making economic opportunities for themselves in a difficult era of racial segregation in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. A new exhibit of original highwayman paintings opens on Friday, April 6th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. A wine and cheese reception at 6 p.m. includes a presentation by Gary Monroe, author of the book The Highwayman, Florida's African-American Landscape Painters. Demonstrations by highwaymen artists, including R.L. Lewis, Isaac Knight, and Roy McClendon, will be held each Saturday in April.
More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're talking about an Englishman in Florida in the mid-19th century who wrote about his time here. Yeah, that's right. We're talking specifically about a gentleman named George Ballantyne. Uh, He came to the United States in uh, 1845. Uh, He was about 20 years old. He left England, uh, as he writes in his book, essentially looking for work, like many young men uh, at that time period, and uh, sought that work in America. Uh, So he had spent time in the Royal Navy. He'd actually spent some time off the coast of West Africa. So he, he was accustomed at least to military life. But he came to America trying to find something different. In fact, uh, when he landed in New York, it was actually one of the first nights he signed on uh, to be part of a crew of a whaling ship. Uh, But then he had a few drinks with one of the guys who was actually on the ship and learned that it was not the best situation. Uh, So the very next day, he joined the American Army and uh, was garrisoned actually at Governor's Island, right, in in New York Harbor for a series of weeks where they started drilling and and kind of learning the the basics of military life. Uh, Shortly after that point, he was sent to Rhode Island. And within a few weeks, he got his first assignment, and that was Florida. Now, here we have someone coming uh, not only new to to Florida, but new to the United States. Uh, He'd only been here for a few months by the time he uh, made his way to Florida and uh, was first stationed at Fort Pickens uh, on Florida's uh, west coast in Pensacola. And I want to read here quickly. This is just a, a brief description of his first sighting of Pensacola. He says here, quote, After a prosperous voyage of 16 days, the low, sandy coast of Florida became distinctly visible. The first appearance of land on approaching Pensacola is very singular. Long, bright lines of silvery white crowned with a mass of dark green vegetation stretch far athwart the blue horizon, suggesting the idea of a strong surf everywhere rolling in upon the shore. So he spent a little bit of time in St. Augustine, uh, but most of the rest of his service was actually spent in Tampa. Well, you have here a first edition copy of George Ballantyne's autobiography. What else does he say about Florida? Yeah, that's right. We're looking at a first edition that was published in 1853. It's entitled Autobiography of an English Soldier in the United States Army. Uh, But it goes on to describe life essentially in camp uh, in Florida shortly after the end of the Second Seminole War, which had officially ended in 1842. So George is here in and spent most of 1846 uh, in Florida. So we're really kind of just at the end of Uh, major hostilities, one of the longest and costliest Indian wars, at least in in U.S. history. Uh, So the United States is keeping a large contingent of U.S. soldiers in Florida, and he becomes part of that group. So he talks a little bit about camp life and kind of the monotony of every day essentially being the same. They they encountered uh, very little resistance. He wasn't involved in any battles in Florida. Uh, But some of his, uh, I guess we'll call them misadventures, are are really quite interesting. He spends a lot of time talking about the proliferation of whiskey, (laughs) a lot of the soldiers who, who delve into homemade brew and uh, get into a little bit of trouble. But he also talks about some of the wildlife. And uh, to supplement their diet, they actually purchased a seine net from one of the local fishermen in, in Pensacola, uh, and they would pull this net along the shore for fish. They, they essentially ate mullet most of the year, and, uh, and he really describes it in, in great detail and enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. But one thing he didn't enjoy were the sharks in Pensacola Bay. And he has one interesting passage I'll read here. They actually caught a shark, and he he goes on to describe what happened after that. He says here, quote, On the beach alongside the wharf, he was dispatched with bayonets and cutlasses. When measured, it was found to be 11 feet long. Its frightfully capacious jaws, full of jagged, sawed-like teeth, 
were taken out of the head and preserved by the ordnance sergeant. When fully extended, the jaws would easily admit a stout man's shoulders to pass along them, <laughs> unquote. So kind of interesting. And, and he talks a bit about soldiers daring each other to swim in the bay. Um, but soon after he arrived in Pensacola, he was sent a little bit further south to Tampa Bay. And in Tampa Bay, he has uh, kind of a better experience. He enjoys his time there because the fort at that time was right in the middle of what would become downtown Tampa uh, in present day. So it was really a part of the community and they had a little more freedom to kind of move about the community, spend more time exploring, hunting, and fishing. Uh, And he describes Tampa Bay as, as this, quote, in front of the barracks, there stood a noble grove of live oak trees, which afforded a delicious shade from the scorching heat of the sun and gave an air of a quiet and expression of sylvan beauty to the scene. The long gray beard of weird-like Spanish moss that droops in huge masses from the rough, brawny arms of these giants of the primeval forest gives them a venerable and juridical appearance, which is exceedingly picturesque, unquote. And he's, he really did enjoy. He spent most of 1846 uh, stationed in Tampa Bay. And at one point, he actually met one of the uh, a group of, of Seminole Indians who came to the fort to trade goods. So if you can imagine, this is only a few years after the end of hostilities. And he talks about a party of about 20 or 30 of what he uh, terms as warriors coming into fort, and they were trading deerskin uh, in exchange for, among other things, uh, alcohol, whiskey, but also metal goods, tools, muskets, powder, that sort of thing. And he, he describes in his autobiography that he, like a lot of soldiers during this time period stationed in Florida, he kind of feels bad for the Seminoles. He feels like this is an area that, um, that they enjoy living in. Uh, and he, like many of the other soldiers, kind of wanted to just leave them alone. And leave them alone he did, because shortly after this, he was sent to Mexico, uh, where he spent the rest of his army life fighting in the Mexican War. Now, are there many detailed accounts like this by 19th century soldiers in Florida? There really aren't that many, at least not that many that were published in 1853. So this is an early publication. Like I said, the majority of his autobiography deals with his time in Mexico. He fought in several battles. He was involved in a large part, actually, of that conflict. And this was one of the first, according to the editor's notes, one of the first descriptions from a regular soldier. A lot of the biographies that were coming out were written by officers and by commanding generals and and folks like that. So this is one of the first, or earliest, rather, of these firsthand accounts kind of on the ground of what it was like for a regular soldier in, in Florida and later in Mexico. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. The media spotlight has been shining brightly on the removal of Confederate monuments and statues. Getting less attention is the sacrifice both black and white Union soldiers made to help preserve the Union and end slavery. Independent producer Chris Howell spoke with Barbara Gannon, associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida, about the shared sacrifice of black and white Union soldiers and the post-Civil War veterans organization called the Grand Army of the Republic. Founded in 1866, the Grand Army of the Republic, or GAR, was the first U.S. veterans organization. Both black and white Civil War veterans from all branches of Union forces were members. The group became one of the first and most powerful organized advocacy groups in American politics. The GAR supported voting rights for black veterans and helped to make Memorial Day a national holiday. In the 1880s, the GAR lobbied Congress to establish regular veterans' pensions. Here's University of Central Florida history professor Barbara Gannon with details. The GAR was the largest veterans' organization 
of the Union Army or the Confederate Army for that matter. It believed in both being a model of patriotism, but also in fraternity with former soldiers and charity for soldiers that needed help. By 1890, it was at least 400,000 members, which made it the largest, most influential political and social organization of its time. And unlike just about every other social and political organization of its time, it was integrated and understood itself as an interracial organization. Gannon's research found that while discrimination of black veterans by white veterans did happen, it was the exception rather than the rule. She learned that black and white veterans of this period enjoyed a unique bond that all soldiers, regardless of race, have when living through the terrible shared struggle and suffering of war. People who had studied it talked about black GAR men as not being treated well or as equals in this group. But I found that they were treated very well, that they were seen as comrades. So once I came up with the understanding that there was a comradeship, a close relationship, that seemed to transcend race-based barriers in the 19th century, I had to explain it because people almost didn't believe it. Well, what I came to was the one cause, W-O-N, in opposition to the lost cause, that these men shared comradeship but also understood that the war had been a war. They fought together in order to both save the Union and free the slaves. A legendary regiment, the 54th Massachusetts, were featured in the film Glory. They were among the first black recruits to enlist to fight for the Union. On February 20, 1864, the 54th and other Union troops marched west from Jacksonville. Gannon says they met a sizable Confederate force at Olusty and met disaster. What had happened was the Union commander decided just to march west. So he just kept moving and he didn't have good intelligence. He did not realize that a Confederate force of about the same size he had, about 5,000, were setting up to meet him on the road near what is Alusty today. Now, the 54th was there, the 8th U.S. Colored Troops, the 13th, 35th U.S. Colored Troops, there were a bunch of black units and white units. And, for example, they had various combat experience. They met an equal-sized number of dug in Confederates and they lost very badly. Now what was interesting was the 8th USCT was very new and they did not do that well as all units without much experience do. The 54th saved the day. The 54th protected the rear guard. They fought a holding action all the way back to protect the rest of the units that were retreating. Confederate monuments and statues have been removed or relocated in Bradenton, Daytona Beach, Gainesville, and Orlando. Gannon says remembering the South's lost cause is romantic, but it's just as important to remember the Union's sacrifice. I think one of the most important things, and it has a lot to do with modern controversies about statues and monuments and such, there was a Union side of the war. People fought both to preserve the Union and free the slaves, they fought to end that terrible institution, and we have totally forgotten it. Where are the Union monuments? At Alusty, there are no Union monuments. Everyone knows the only dead there are Union. There are bodies somewhere buried there. So I would say look to your own state. Look at Alusty. 
So that's what I would ask people, to remember the union cause. Barbara Gannon is Associate Professor of History at UCF and is the author of The One Cause, Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Chris Howell. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker, and this week, Chris Howell. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.